Justin, would you read Proverbs 26, 4 and 5? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This is the one-two punch of how we're going to use the transcendental argument we talked about last week in actual conversations about our faith. Why are both of those verses in the Bible? In this seeming contradiction. Because, as Solomon says, there's a time for this and there's a time for that. And in these conversations, we've got to be equipped to have both of these at the ready. The ability to not answer a fool according to his folly and the ability to answer a fool according to his folly. We're going to do both. And what's going to happen is we're going to be prepared to have a multi-level approach. Answer a fool, don't answer a fool. We're going to have positive arguments and negative arguments. We're going to have what I'll talk about in a minute, what are called ultimate arguments. And we're going to have what are called proximate arguments. And we're going to have what are called existential arguments. And we're not going to care about any of those words. But we're going to have all of these different tools in the toolbox ready to use in these conversations so that as we talk about our faith with a fool, the Bible's definition of someone who has up to that point rejected the word of God, we can graciously and skillfully engage in that conversation. Why do we need all this stuff? Why do we need these different types of arguments, the positive and the negative? Why do we need to have all these tools in our toolbox if really all we're doing is talking about our faith? Well, it's because we're talking about our faith with a purpose. And the purpose is to persuade that person. Right? We're not just talking about a faith to tell a story about ourselves. We don't need any preparation for that. But if these conversations are purposeful, you're looking for a particular outcome that God would use this conversation to move that person more toward himself, then we've got to recognize that a wide variety of questions and topics and types of argumentation are helpful. Uh, One, worldviews vary in their, in how dumb they are. (laughs) What I would say in a classroom is they vary in their philosophical adequacy. When you, not all worldviews are equally wrong. They're all wrong except Christianity, but they're not all equally wrong. Some of them are a lot closer Some of them have more common grace truths. Some of them have a more logical basis, even if they ultimately can't defend their presuppositions. So as we talk about these presuppositions in a minute, these basic philosophical issues, some of these views will be more equipped to answer those than others. So when you're talking to someone whose worldview is just denies logic and meaning and words and rationality, you've got a lot of work to do on that end of the spectrum. But when you're talking to somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness, that's not what's going to make the distinction between you and they. You've got other types of arguments that are going to be more effective. Worldviews break down at different points. And you need to know lots of arguments so that when you figure out the type of worldview you're dealing with, you're prepared for, oh, I know where this is going to break down. Let me ask some questions that helps to show this person where this is going to break down. Worldviews vary in their proximity to Christianity, how close they are, how much they hold in common with the Christian worldview in terms of their outlook, how much truth they have in them. They're not all the same. So two analogies that one of my professors used in seminary, one of them is the analogy of good forgeries and bad forgeries, right? We think about somebody forging uh, a piece of art. If I were to uh, forge a Monet painting, it would be pretty obvious to 
all of you that this was a forgery. It's a pretty bad forgery. It's pretty easy to spot. But now, maybe some of you have seen the documentary about Vermeer, we have the technology to scan these things and to use light and lasers and whatever else to come up with forgeries that are nearly indistinguishable to the naked eye. And it might take a wide variety of tests to figure out that this thing is the forgery. Well, so it is with worldviews. Some people's worldviews are self-evidently nuts. You talk to them and you realize, whoa, got a lot of work to do here. That's not true. Some people have better forgeries as worldviews, and you have to ask a lot of questions and do a lot of unpacking to uh, figure out where their worldview is going to break down, and you need to be able to do that. Another analogy is the level of military engagement. So how, uh, what specific type of weapon you're going to use in a war, how direct your attack will be, uh, those things depend. The way you engage troops depend on the nature of the opponent. Right? And there's certain uh, weapons and certain strategies that you'll use in, uh, in uh, land combat, and there's certain that you'll use in sea or aerial combat. Um, that's the way it is here. That's an analogy of what am I fighting against? What am I up against? If I'm dealing with somebody who has no concept of objective truth and rationality, I'm wasting my time firing off all these missiles on early Stoic philosophers and the nature of the Logos. Right? This is not really where you want to be. If I'm talking to somebody who, more realistically, grew up in the American South, in the burned-over district of Christianity, where everybody thinks they believe in Jesus, and everybody says the Bible is a good thing, you need to be able to tailor your questions and your conversation, your attack, based on what you're dealing with. Because if you come into that discussion and talk about transcendental arguments, how's it going to go? Not so good. (laughs) Uh, so you've got to have the right kind of tools in the tool belt. So the first prong is answering a fool according to his folly. We're going to take them in reverse order from the, from the proverb. Um, this is the negative argument. This is an, an internal critique of the other person's worldview. This is where your goal is to figure out what they believe, and then you're able to analyze, in light of Scripture, not your own arrogance, what's wrong with what they believe. Why what they believe does not explain reality correctly. So this is the negative argument. So there are some terms we need to learn. I'm going to move through them quickly, and then as I get to the real tactical part here in a minute, those terms will come back up, and I'll be able to use them and explain them with more context. Um, But there are three levels of negative argument that we're going to talk about. Ultimate, proximate, and existential. Again, I don't care if you learn the terms, but you've got to have the tools in your tool belt. uh, And this helps us to kind of put them in the right buckets. Um, All of these are perspectives on the same argument. So all of this is going in the same tool belt. How do I have conversations about my faith? How do I fit broadly within this concept of a transcendental argument? These are just tools in the tool belt. Uh, And so in order to do that, we want to understand what we're doing a little more clearly. And that's why these terms come up. So as we make these arguments, we're going to think about ultimate arguments. That is attacking the unbeliever's ultimate authority. Whatever their top level standard is, how do they decide what is and what is not? What is true and what is false? What is required and what is forbidden? Everybody has some sort of intellectual philosophical code for reality. Where did that come from? That's their ultimate authority. And we want to figure out what that is. And then whatever it is, if it is not God in Christ, if it is not the eternal word, we're going to show that that ultimate authority breaks down. That that ultimate authority cannot provide for the way even that person lives. Back to last week's of they're not living consistently with their beliefs. 
If their ultimate authority is not the eternal word, they can't live consistently with their beliefs. So we've got to figure out what that ultimate authority is, and then we can deal with it. We've got to figure out whether their ultimate authority is going to be arbitrary. It's going to be inconsistent. And we've got to show that in a gracious way through questions. We talked about the laws of logic. We talked about the uniformity of nature, moral absolutes. I'll talk more about those in a minute. But those are the kinds of things from last week that fit in to that ultimate argument. Um, and whether you're de- remember I talked about how we're dealing with kind of modern and postmodern people uh, and we got to figure out which one we're dealing with so modern people are kind of empiricists so there's certain questions you ask those modern people hey you think that uh, science is this authority you t- let's talk about that let's talk about how it could be that these things are universally binding or anything is universally binding and then we talked about postmoderns how they're relativists and when we figure out we're dealing with one of those we're going to want to ask questions about their moral claims. We're going to want to, you know, I, I trust you all by this point have heard the people who say there's, there is no absolute truth. There's a real problem with that statement. It's an absolute truth. It's wrong, but they're claiming it's an absolute truth that there are none. And so just that kind of self-defeating stuff, um, no matter where they're coming from, their ultimate arguments will break down and we need to be able to deal with that. And to ask the questions that get us there. We're also going to think about proximate arguments. Proximate, you think about the word proximity, which means something that's close to you, something that's around you. So proximate arguments are attacking their own evidence and facts from the world around them. They will look at the world and they will say, well, look, this is the case and it proves that. And we will look at the world and say, I don't think that proves what you think it proves. And back to their ultimate argument, in fact, in your worldview, it can't even prove what you're saying it proves. Um, those are proximate arguments. This is where the, evi- the, the evidentialist stuff, when we talked about the different types of apologetics, and we said there's one view that says you just focus on the evidences, the history of the proof of the resurrection, all, all of these historical witnesses, and we said, no, 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 you can't make that the centerpiece of your argument, but you can use that in your argument, and this is where you use it. When people say, oh, you know, you don't trust the Bible because the Bible was corrupted by the church in the 5th century, and blah, 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 you say, well, okay, let's go look at that evidence. Because what you think is the evidence from the world is not correct. Your, your facts are wrong. So let's go look at correct facts. I saw a quote yesterday from my dear friend Bart Ehrman at North, in North Carolina. And uh, he was, what was he arguing about? And it was nuts. And then he basically said, oh, it was whether or not uh, the apostles were all or mostly all martyred. And he said, uh, there's no proof for that whatsoever because the Bible doesn't say much about it except in a couple cases. And the only uh, stories that we have about the apostles being martyred came from outside the Bible. Now, this from a man who doesn't think the Bible's reliable. And this from a man who, in every other context, thinks all of those sources outside the Bible are reliable. But the moment those sources say that most or all of the apostles died a martyr's death, he says, no, no, we don't have any reason to believe that. That's a secondary source. Oh, can't be pleased. So you're going to talk to people who think they have a lot of facts about Christianity. The facts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ are on incredibly solid ground. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it's because you don't want to. It's either no one's ever told you or you don't want to. But nobody who looks at that evidence with any kind of open mind could come away with another conclusion. Now, we know why. It's because things of the Spirit are discerned by the Spirit. But humanly speaking, uh, the evidence is amazing. And so those are factual errors. And then also there will be logical errors in their proximate experience. They live by the law of non-contradiction that we talked about last week. But they can't account for the law of non-contradiction. They can't explain why it should exist or should be believed in all places and all times. So we'll talk about that. Uh, And then we're also going to think about existential arguments. So this is attacking the unbeliever's um, evidence from their personal experience, where they say, well, this isn't true because I've experienced such and such. Um, And we're going to point out how they live, their actual experience is supportive of our case, not of theirs. 
because their experience is not consistent with their worldview. It's consistent with our worldview. And what we'll try to do in this argument, again, in a gracious way, but if we're dealing with somebody who really wants to go down that path, we're going to try to push them to live consistently with their worldview because we want to push them into that madness so that they say, there be dragons. This is madness. I will not, cannot live that way. Maybe I should think differently about the world. Um, And so we'll be able at that point to present the truth of Christianity as a solution to the meaninglessness and the futility of this world. Our experience existentially in this world is one of sexual immorality. It's one of crime and tragedy. It's one of wanting and desiring and knowing that there are moral absolutes and experiencing inside the weight of that. Well, their worldview can't account for why you would ever feel bad for any of that. And so we talk about that and we use their experience. So contrary to what the non-Christian assumes, his worldview simply can't make sense of the world or even of his own experience of the world. And that's surprising for a lot of people as you get into these conversations is, again, it's just questions, which I'll keep harping on for the next few weeks. How did you feel about that? Why did you feel that way? Now, wait a minute. I thought you said, so how does that jive with how you felt? And all you're trying to show them is that their experience of the world which is real. They lived it. It's right. That's pretty believable if our senses are to be believed, which is back to ultimate arguments, by the way. Uh, but if our senses are to believe, their experience of the world is very real and their worldview can't even account for their own experience. So here they are telling you that they can explain in some measure the origins and the centerpiece of the universe and they can't even explain their own experience. And that can be a really powerful argument when talking to people. Um, Without the Christian worldview, there can be no communication, there can be no personhood, there can be no reason. So uh, we eventually go all the way back up to these ultimate arguments because that's that's the whole ballgame. And so we, we venture down into these other arguments from the other types of apologetics that we venture down into them to expose the fact that unbelievers have a real ultimate authority problem. Their ultimate authority cannot solve this world. And that's why presuppositionalism says you have to start there. Um, I would say you have to make that the center. (laughs) And sometimes you start from the outside to get in, but that is always the focus. Getting the person to believe all the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus doesn't win you the ball game. Getting a person to believe that God is, and therefore everything else, that's the ball game. And that can only be seen by the Spirit. And so the Spirit uh, has to show them that through what we do. To do this well, to have conversations about faith, we've got to become experts in two things. One of them is pretty obvious, right? Which is our own worldview. You have to know what you believe and why you believe it. All of this is futile if your answer at some point to people is going to be, I don't know, I just think it sounds good. Oh, well, that's a little unsatisfying. (laughs) But what else do we have to become experts in as we're having the conversation? The one person's. So you have to know enough about the other worldviews to be able to kind of ask the right questions and put them in a box. But what you really have to become an expert at over the course of this conversation is that person's worldview. You've got to know what they believe. And there's two ways to accomplish it. Um, Good questions is the dominant one. You become an expert on a person's worldview by asking really good questions. And good questions have a lot of other benefits. Um, They allow you to make sure that you really know what that person believes rather than what you assume they believe. And that's one of the real dangers in these situations when we go into them more concerned about talking than listening is that we're not actually hearing what they're saying to us. We, we put them in a box. Oh, I know you. You're a, you know, you're a postmodern. Blah, blah. Just maybe, but ask. Ask questions. Follow up. Really listen to what they're saying so that you know what they believe. You've got to know exactly what you're arguing against and what it is that you need to refute. And most of the time, you're dealing with a person who they don't even know what they believe. They don't know. 
And so then the questions have another fantastic advantage, which is those questions help this person to become aware of their presuppositions. It helps this person to clarify and to say out loud and to hear themselves say, well, I think blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of add and they think, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I don't believe that. You can really help them. Oftentimes, half of the work in these conversations is just to get the unbeliever to recognize and understand what they actually believe. And that's true of baby Christians as well. They haven't thought it through. They haven't immersed themselves in the scriptures. They haven't, um, they haven't made Christ Lord of all their thinking and behavior. And so as you ask questions graciously and humbly and with self-awareness, you can help them to say and therefore to see and to clarify what they actually believe and what they take for granted. So you can help give them that clarity. Um, Asking the right questions is the most effective way to help them see that their worldview is defective and needs to be changed or needs to be refined. They won't see their irrationality until you lead them to irrationality. None of us do. All the stuff that we just take for granted and that we do that doesn't make any sense, all of the ridiculous inconsistencies in our own lives, we don't know they're inconsistent. And a conversation with somebody who's asking gracious questions and helping us to explain what we do, we can suddenly see, ugh, (laughs) that's not so good. (laughs) That's really inconsistent with what I believe. Listening is also incredibly valuable because it shows respect. That what you're going to do is you're going to argue with somebody. The nature of these conversations is an argument. That doesn't mean you have to be argumentative. We've talked about that. But what you are doing is arguing with them in the technical sense of the term. You're finding out what they believe and you're saying what you believe is wrong. You should believe this instead. That is what you're doing. And so listening shows the respect that says, I'm arguing because I understand what you believe. I'm not arguing because I assume what you believe. I assume I'm right and you're wrong. I'm arguing because I've asked and you've spoken and we've clarified and now I understand what you believe. And that's a very respectful thing. Um, Listening is also super helpful to your cause because it just works. The longer you let people talk who haven't thought about what they believe, the more it will come out. Right? The, more, uh, the more their worldview will inevitably self-destruct. The longer you let somebody talk who hasn't really thought about what they believe, the more inconsistencies and absurdities and irrationality will come out. Um, And we take no joy in that. Again, humility, but it makes the argument a lot easier. Hey, you just said this. The way you, humanly speaking, the way you advance the ball in these arguments is not by using your words. It's by using theirs and God's. That's the contrast here. The more you use your words, the more they think this is you against them. And that's not the goal. So you use their words and God's words. And the more of that there is, the better off you'll be. And so that's why listening is helpful. And then the other thing listening does is it slows the pace of the conversation down, which is good in two ways. Slowing the pace of the conversation down is good for you because you need to really think about what's happening. There are a lot of things that you could say, but what's the most helpful thing to say? There are a lot of things that are going to be wrong with what they've said, but what's the most important thing you can focus on? Or what's the one where you see the person gave you a little bit of a a more crack in the door than some things that they seem completely closed down to at this point? And as you slow the pace of the conversation down, you've got time to make that analysis. Slowing the conversation down is also advantageous to them because it prevents intellectual bullying. The faster you talk and the more you talk and the more relentless you are in your talk, the more the person is going to feel bullied or even just lectured to. Like you're the person up at the, up at the podium in class and you're lecturing the student and they need to hear all from you rather than no, this is a conversation of two people who are equals in the conversation. Our worldviews are not equal, but we're equal, and so we're having this conversation as equals to get to the truth and to figure it out. And as you listen, you slow down the pace of the conversation, and you help resist some of that intellectual bullying. Nobody wants to feel run over by an intellectual freight train. You've all felt that way before, where you were in a conversation with somebody, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but in the end, who cares? you got train tracks on your back. Um, 
And slowing down can really help with that. The second way, though, to become experts in their worldview, besides asking good questions, is just by observation. Um, That's to infer what they believe from the way they live and the choices they make. Some of these you will have seen with your own eyes, and so you can bring up from firsthand experience. Some of these may come up as you're asking questions and they tell you stories. But as you think about the way they live, you'll be able to draw conclusions. And so some of the easiest questions to ask, because people love to tell stories about their own life, and that feels less threatening, is to ask people questions about how they live. Rather than starting with what they believe, Ask them how they live. Ask them specifics about their life and how they make decisions and what they do in various areas. And you'll be able to infer from that what they believe. And then you can ask a question. Oh, now is that because you, and then you can go into a belief thing, but observation is really important as well. Both require a gracious yet challenging critique. You have to be willing to challenge someone. You can't be afraid of them suddenly souring on you because you didn't just swallow everything they said and say, that's great, I'm glad that works for you. But it's a gracious challenging. Um, There are few types of conversations in life where humility has to be more evident than in these types of conversations. Because if somebody believes that I think Jake should believe my worldview because I'm right and Jake's wrong, that's why Jake should believe it. That's horrible and wrong and ineffective. (laughs) It loses on every point, right? But if Jake comes to believe in the conversation, even if he at the start of it believes that my worldview is nuts and at the end of it believes my worldview is still really hard to swallow, but the whole way through the conversation, Jake believes Paul wants me to believe this not because he thinks he's right and I'm wrong, but because he thinks this is life. Because he would not believe this except by the Spirit of God. And because he is earnestly desiring my good, not to win an argument. He's earnestly desiring my good, then you've done really well in that conversation. So that's the big picture, the terms and kind of the structure. And then I want to move through a handful of tactical arguments um, so I can show you sort of how we're weaving all of this in. Because at this level, it probably seems a little complicated. It probably seems a little heady. But when I show you the examples, you'll see, oh, I could do that. And all I'm trying to show you is that thing that you're doing in these tactical, specific parts of the conversation actually fit in these buckets. And It's helpful for you to be able to say, wow, this person is really, really interested in evidence from the world. I need to pull out some of my proximate arguments. You don't have to use the term, but I need to think through where do they look at the world wrongly? Where's their evidence just incorrect? Where do they not have enough knowledge? Or, boy, this is a person who everything they think is based on their own experience. So I need to think about my argument in terms of how their experience, I can validate that. Yes, that was really your experience. Your worldview can't explain it. It doesn't account for it. What you say you believe doesn't make any sense, even of your own experience. So that's the point of having those. Questions about that As uh, before we get into the tactical stuff? Two quick comments. One is, uh, I don't know if we have it on the table or not, but um, James Anderson's What is Your Worldview? Which is a yes. Choose Your Own Adventure, where you just basically ask you start big questions and you go through it. And it's, I mean, it's a tiny book. Uh, and it's one you could give to somebody, and it will tell you what your worldview at the end, because most people don't know. Most Christians will probably be surprised where they landed based on how they answered the question. Yeah, Barna just did the survey again that he always wastes his money on to figure out what is the average Christian's worldview. Um, and it's always the same thing. It's always that moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah. You know, God wants me to do good so that I'll feel good. Great, yeah. Um, James Anderson, that's a great little book. Just so you know, when I said before, one of my professors used these two analogies. That was James Anderson. He's my advanced apologetics professor. Um, And the argument examples we're going to talk about here are mostly his. Uh, Oh, oh, and you said two points. Oh, yeah. Uh, Just um, we use the military thinking and the military terms and attack and all this stuff. For me, I have to always remember that I'm attacking the argument. I'm attacking the other person's views. 
and never the other person. Because when we go into kill, things, kill, you know, conversations like that can get heated. Yeah, it, you don't ever be the one one that is attacking that person. In your minds, go back a month in this class. The image that we need to have in these conversations is not that this person is our enemy. The image that we need to have is that the enemy, the great enemy, God's enemy, has this person by the leg and is pulling them down into darkness. And so with all the the might and energy and resolve you have, you are attacking the evil one who is pulling them down while you are graciously and with love in your eyes trying to grasp that person's hand. You cannot say and do things in a way that make that person withdraw their hand from you. That is counterproductive. You want that person to reach out and take this lifeline that you're offering them while your eyes are fixed on the destruction of the enemy who is ultimately pulling them under. Um, That is a very important balance to keep in place. All right, so let's talk some tactics for a minute. First example, I'm going to talk about atheistic worldviews, but a lot of these arguments are going to apply across the spectrum. And what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks is we'll look at very specific worldviews. We'll look at the unique arguments for Islam and for Jehovah's Witness and for whatever else. But I want to start here with just the people who say there is no God. And just a a brief rabbit trail for a moment on where do you think... So it's not cool to be an atheist anymore. Uh, They're too dogmatic. So what's cool now... It's to be an agnostic. I don't know, man. I'm just saying we can't know. Well, here's here's what you need to know about agnostics. Do agnostics live? How do they live? Do they live as if the Christian God is possibly true? Or do they live as if the Christian God is absolutely not true? The latter. They live. So they have made their choice. They're intellectually sophisticated enough to say, well, I'm not saying it's an absolute, but they are living under the choice they've made. So thinking about atheistic worldviews is a great place to start because it's going to capture a very large swath of the population who no matter what they say with with their words, they live in light of the choice that they've made, which is there is no God. Uh, And that's true of a lot of people, especially in the South, who call themselves Christians as well. They say, of course I'm a Christian. Haven't been to church in 30 years. Right? Nothing about Scripture is what informs the way that they live. But they live in the South. And they went to Sunday school for like 14 years when they were young. And they have a pen. And they know Bible-ish verses. Uh, yeah. And, and again, we're, we're, we're making a big distinction there between immature believers who know Christ and follow Christ in super immature ways and people who do not follow God at all but just claim his name through some personal experience sometimes a long time ago. We're not saying people who don't live exactly the way we live in Christianity are no different than atheists. We're saying people who live as if there is no God, which includes some people who say that they're Christians, are for the purposes of these arguments no different than atheists. All right, atheist worldviews. Tactic one, just as examples. These are not going to be comprehensive. I just want to give you some examples. They have no cause for the laws of logic. Um, They have no defense for why the laws of logic exist. And yet, they're assuming the laws of logic in everything they say to you about reality. Start with this. It's the first problem with the laws of logic for an atheist. Now, atheists are, I'm going to speak in broad generalizations. I know there are very finite exceptions. But they're naturalists. They're materialists. Right? The world is what we can see. So, what's the first problem with the laws of logic for them? Laws of logic are immaterial. Show me a substance. Show me a chemical composition. 
show me a carbonic something. It's immaterial. So you have told me we live in a world that is utterly material. But you operate under the laws of logic, and they are not. So we have a little bit of a problem there. Another problem with the laws of logic is that they're absolute. And you've told me that there are no absolutes. <laughs> Absolute means they are consistent and they never change. They have always been exactly as they are. But I thought we lived in a world of randomness. In a world of randomness, how can anything be absolute? We, we live in a world where things evolve, right? Not just evolution into humans, but everything in the materialistic worldview evolves. If it didn't, if it didn't constantly change, they would have utterly no way to explain how any of it is here. So they can't say it's always been here as it was. They have to say, no, 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 no. It used to be here like this, and then it became like that, and then like that, and like that, and like that, and like that. And, and, and here we are, whether you're talking about biological life or whether you're talking about the, the, um, the earth itself, the topography of the earth and the layers under the oceans. Um, everything evolves. But the laws of logic, which are immaterial, are also absolute. There can be no time in which they were not. And us still have anything resembling the rationality that they're claiming in this type of discussion. And then the other problem is they are universal. Which is back to they haven't changed over time, but it also includes they're the same in all places. No matter where you go, this is how they are. Um, they apply everywhere, spatially and temporally. So it's not just, I believe the laws of logic because I'm a Western thinker in 2021. It's no, actually, I could go back to the 1600s and I could go to East Asia and no matter what anybody says, I would be able to make exactly the same arguments that the laws of logic apply there and were exactly the same too. So atheists and unbelievers... When they describe their view of reality to you, there is no way that they can describe what they believe because there's no way that they can believe what they believe or believe anything without the laws of logic. And yet the worldview they're going to describe to you, if it's an atheistic, godless worldview, a materialistic worldview, can't have them. They've taken this from a theistic worldview and said, I need that. I'm going to assume it and then make the rest of my arguments. But it doesn't work. The result of this, now we're going to bring it back up to an ultimate argument, is that atheism, what, what, what is the one key claim of materialism? The naturalistic, materialistic worldview is based on one key claim, which is that Everything you know can be empirically demonstrated. Everything that can be known can be empirically demonstrated. But the ultimate problem with that claim, it can't be empirically demonstrated. It needs this. Run an experiment that proves the laws of logic. Now we have lots of evidences of it at work but we don't have any proof that it is beyond those evidences it just is, it's immaterial so this is a major problem for them so as you think about prox bringing it back down to a really practical proximate and existential argument is at some point in this conversation this person is going to reject your statement about the Bible's authority you're going to say the word of God is supreme and they're going to say, no, it's not. And your question needs to be, without using the laws of logic, because they're not in your worldview, prove it. And then you can even say, i tell you what, I'll let you borrow the laws of logic. Now prove it. <laughs> they reject your ultimate authority, claiming that their ultimate authority, naturalism, materialism, is superior. And to, to use the 
parlance. This isn't very careful terminology. But they say they believe based on facts and you believe based on faith. And what you've got to show them is, nope, it's both faith. It's both faith. Because ultimate authorities don't get proved. They don't get proved. Otherwise, they wouldn't be ultimate. The proof would be ultimate. And so, what you're telling me, I reject your ultimate authority because mine is rationally and can be proved with evidence. No, it can't. No, it can't. It can't account for these things. Let's make another one. We talked a little bit the other week about the uniformity of nature. This is my favorite. I find it to be the most effective. Uh, Atheistic worldviews cannot account for the uniformity of nature, and they are assuming it in everything they say. So the uniformity of nature is a basic assumption that the future will be like the past. That's really all it is. It's the idea that the universe works in a predictable, uniform way. Um, Some people call this the inductive principle, that something I observe in the future will be uh, will resemble what happened in the past. Tomorrow's sunrise is like today's sunrise. Tomorrow's speed of light, today's speed of light. Um, acceleration due to gravity, all these things. Um, the fact that gasoline will function effectively to power your car's engine to get from here to there. Why do you think that will work tomorrow? Because it worked today. But that's not an argument from experience that we'll talk about in a minute. It's an argument from the university of, uh, from the uh, uniformity of nature. What do atheist worldviews say about nature, say about the world? What is their fundamental claim about reality? That it's random. That it's random and disordered. Right? A random, disordered universe gives you no basis on which to believe the sun will come up tomorrow. It gives you no basis on which to believe that tomorrow gasoline will fire your combustion engine. It gives you no basis to believe that anything in the future will correspond to what took place in the past. A random, disordered universe cannot account for the the uniformity of nature, uh, but without it, Nothing we do makes any sense, especially science. Science makes no sense apart from the uniformity of nature. The idea that I can do an experiment and I can repeat an experiment and because of the correspondence between those uh, results, I can know something about reality. The only reason I can know it is if the uniformity of nature is true. Otherwise, I got the same result twice through some series of random events, and I have that has no predictive value for the future. Now, if you make this kind of argument, you'll get some counterarguments. And one of them will be, as I said, just past experience. Hey, that's what we've always seen, so we just go with it. We've always seen the sunrise, so the predictability that will rise tomorrow is based on our own past experience. But <laughs> that is, uh, we get accused of circular arguments in Christianity. That is the most circular argument that a person can imagine. Because my question was, how do you know the future will be like the past? And your answer was, because it was the past. I said, how do you know? Yeah, yeah, because that was the past. Wait, wait What? That doesn't tell me how you know it. That tells me why you think it, why you expect it. I'm asking, how can you know? Because ultimately what we're trying to do with worldviews is, how can I know? How can I know anything? And they're saying, I know because that's how it was yesterday. And you're saying, that only works if the universe uh, is uniform. You'll also get pragmatism, right? Lots of people will try to dismiss this as, oh, that's a, that's a heady university philosopher uh, kind of argument. Uh, we know that the future will be like the past because what else? I mean, that's our experience. It's pragmatism. What else could we believe? Exactly. Exactly. It aligns with our experience. We believe it because it's the way things are. We believe it because it's true. My question is, how can your worldview explain it? On what basis can it 
can you make sense of it? Especially when you're dealing with people from a naturalistic, materialistic worldview, because their worldview says the opposite should be true. Their worldview says no matter how many times we've seen the sun rise over the horizon, no one can ever factually say they know it will rise tomorrow. They can expect, they can put a high probability on it, but they cannot know because the universe could do differently. The atoms could come together in a different configuration and it could all change. Uh, So pragmatism is not a really helpful argument there. One last example this morning is moral absolutes. This is the one you'll end up doing the most (laughs) Uh, because it starts existential. It starts with a person's experience, and that's where most of the people that we talk to want to start. That's where they think the most about their worldview is their own experience. Uh, occasionally, you meet philosophy-minded people who are thinking at a high, uh, not, not high like it's better, but high like it's high-minded level. Um, most of us just know what we do, what we think, what we feel. And so we want to start the conversation there, which is fine. But here's the problem. Atheistic worldviews cannot account for moral absolutes. There can be no good that is always good in a naturalistic, materialistic worldview. There can be no bad that is always bad in a naturalistic, materialistic worldview. They can't account for it. Back to one, it's immaterial. It's absolute. It's universal. It has all the same problems as the laws of logic. You just you can't account for it. Now, they'll say, good. That's why we don't believe in them. We don't believe in moral absolutes. And our worldview doesn't account for them, and we're just fine with that. But the problem is, and this is where you've got to get into an existential argument, they do believe in moral absolutes. And we'll talk about some of the moral evils. Last week I used raping and murdering children, right? We'll talk about that as a category of example. But start with another one, with people that are really um, aware of their naturalistic, moralistic worldview. People who want to treat you like... Their view is the smarter, more logical one because it's science and yours is faith and silly and just hope a hope a hopus. Start with this moral absolute. Should scientists report their data accurately? If the only way we can know anything is through observation and scientists reporting what they tell, is it ever good for a scientist to report their data falsely? For a scientist to lead a people into lies and deception. Really naturalistic worldview people struggle with this because they want to say, well, they should do it for the good of society and blah, blah, blah. No, but that's not my question. My question is, is it ever right? It's a moral absolute. Scientists should report their data accurately. And morals must be. So then the question is, how can materialism account for them? Whether it's that, reporting your data accurately, or whether it's Do you think it is uh, good or evil or indifferent that your neighbor wants to come over and rape and murder your child? Tell me that there are no, tell me that the way you live says there are no moral absolutes. Nobody lives that way. Nobody. They may argue with some of the examples you give, but you just got to listen carefully to their answers to other questions that you ask. Because as you ask questions, they will use the word right and they will use the word wrong. They will use the word good. They will use the word bad. And you've got to make a mental note. You think that's a moral absolute. And I'll come back to that later. I'll come back to that thing that you just said. You know, it's bad. You don't want people running around judging people. That's just terrible. Is it? Or do you mean it feels terrible? Because if it is terrible, then that's a moral absolute. People give you counter-arguments, same as before, right? Past experience. Well, we've come to learn that certain acts are rewarded and certain acts are punished by natural consequences. So it's not that there's, there's moral absolutes. It's just that we've learned over time some things bring about good outcomes and some things bring about bad out- outcomes. And again, go to an existential argument. Really? Really? You look around the world and you can say that it is the case that people who do good get good and people who do bad get bad. That's nobody's experience. Nobody's. 
societal constructs is another argument, right? There's no moral absolute, but cultures agree on moral codes as ways that we're going to uh, reward the collective good and support one another. Then why would anyone be obligated to follow them? You can't say it's actually good. You can say it's a choice somebody made. You can't say it's actually good. Nobody would be obligated to follow them. What binding effect does somebody's societal construct have on me? Um, Also, it means that in at least some societies, at least some theoretical society, if that view is true, if the society decided that raping and murdering your children was acceptable, then it actually is acceptable because it's just a societal construct. Nobody's okay with that. And then the last is personal and subjective, right? Where people will say, there are no moral absolutes. I feel strongly about my morals. I use terms like right and wrong and good and bad because they're mine. But they're not absolutes for other people. It's just good for me. It's true for me. And if that's the case, why punish anyone? If my truth is that I can rape and murder your children, what's it to you? You just need to worry about you and let me worry about me. And we're bringing in an approximate argument here, right? Which is the absence of moral absolutes is not consistent with your experience. You cringe when you read the newspaper. You cringe when you see that news report on the evil that somebody did. You feel a sense of guilt internally, existentially, when you yourself do something that you know to be wrong. Um, That's not a societal construct. That's you cringing against what is actually wrong. And then some people, of course, the, the libertarian crowd will say, oh, okay then, so then... The, the trick is you just you can't harm others. Well, you don't even have to go down that rat hole because they just gave you the win. They just conceded that there's at least one moral absolute. What you do can't hurt other people. So even if they think that's the only moral absolute, they're wrong, but they admitted that there's one, and now you go back to how does your worldview account for even one moral absolute? It's immaterial, it's absolute, it's universal. Explain it. How can it be? Atheists believe in moral absolutes without any reason at all, and it's in spite of their professed worldview. And any system that's going to actually lead us to knowledge, which is what we all claim, how do I know, it's going to have to account for absolutes. Um, So as we dig in the next few weeks into next week, we'll do the positive side of the argument. And then we'll look at some of these specific worldviews. Like when we get to Mormonism, these same questions will come up. That's why we're, we're starting with them. Ulti- Mormonism is ultimately polytheistic. There are multiple gods. Which god sets the moral absolutes? You see the problem they have? They live in a world that has moral absolutes. But they live in a god that claims there's not one ultimate authority, but there's multiple co-equal ultimate authorities. So which one sets the morals? Is the person just doing it through relativism? Is there really one of those gods that's higher than the other gods and that's the god who's legit? Or is it just some higher standard even than their gods that sets the morals? They're going to have these same problems. But whatever we figure out about atheistic worldviews is going to bear good fruit as we move down the chain in arguments. I know that was drinking out of a fire hose, but I really wanted to do this one in one week instead of two. Uh, I'll start next week with questions. We're done. Thanks.